No poet in the whole English literary tradition, not even Shakespeare, is more appealing, either as a man or as an artist, than Geoffrey Chaucer, or more worthy of biography. And no biography, it seems at first glance, should be easier to write, despite the complexity of the philosophical systems and social mores that shaped his thought, Chaucer's general way of looking at things seems clear as an English April day. And since he worked for the government, which kept elaborate records, we have numerous facts to pin his life to. Yet telling his story proves more difficult than one might think. In his poetry, Chaucer does not talk about himself, except jokingly and trivially. He nowhere tells us, in explicit fashion, what he thought about particular acquaintances, or even how he felt when his wife died. And the official facts of Chaucer's life, numerous as they are, are frequently lures toward befuddlement, not so much because the poet and his times are mysterious, though they are, and especially so for Americans, to whom the English gentry's titles are as confusing as the names in War and Peace, as because, like the missing parts of old frescoes, the vital connections, that is, Chaucer's private feelings and the emotional pressures that gave shape to his age, are for the most part lost utterly, vanished from the world like smoke. However one may pore over the hints and clues in the official records of the 14th century, the traditional conjectures about Chaucer's life nearly all remain conjectures, and the facts mere facts. That should hardly surprise us. We can barely understand ourselves these days, barely piece together our own biographies, though for those we have something like complete information. Since nothing remains of that once wise and gentle, much-loved old man, as all his contemporaries were quick to agree, or nothing but some dry and confusing records, some beautiful, ironic, and ambiguous poetry, two or three pictures, and some bones, whose measurements inform us that, if they're really Chaucer's, he was five foot six, about average at the time. We have no choice but to make up Chaucer's life as if his story were a novel, by the play of fancy on the lost world's dust and scrapings. So Chaucer himself made up the classical age, dressed up young Troilus in crusader's armor, and decorated legendary Theseus's Athens with battlemented towers, wide jousting grounds, and sunny English gardens. This does not mean, of course, that a biographer has license to be cavalier about historical detail, or exclude possible interpretations of the facts out of preference for others that make livelier fiction. But while I try in this book to be careful about facts, my purpose is not academic history, but rather something between that and poetic celebration of things unchangeable. Human history, it seems to me, never repeats itself and can never be recaptured. But human emotions endure like granite. For instance, the lust of old men for young girls, or the imprisoned wife's restlessness, or the anger of the scorned homosexual, Chaucer's subjects. The age-old human emotions live on and on, generation after generation, and the best poets feel them or spy them out in others and cunningly transfix them. And wondering about that, wondering about when and where the poet perhaps experienced the emotion he describes, since no one will ever know the answer for sure, is as much the business of the novelist as that of the historian. 
For all the history I include in this book, I am no historian, but a novelist and poet, a literary disciple come centuries late. I include mere moments of historical background, dull lightning flashes that reveal, in frozen gesture, events whose development, in comparison to the story of any single human life, were as lumbering and awesome as the shifting of continents on Earth's vast skin. I make no pretense of explaining or even connecting such movements. I mean only to convey my own impression of how they affect, subtly yet profoundly, one's subjective image of the hero of this book.